G'day dear listeners, Jono here reminding you that we are returning to Israel with Rabbi Tobias Singer and we want you to come with us this November. Go to truthtoyou.org and click on the Tanakh Tour of Israel and join us as we walk where judges, kings, priests and prophets made history in the Holy Land. Seats are limited, so don't delay the Tanakh Tour of Israel this November on truthtoyou.org. G'day wherever you may be around the world and thank you for your company once again on truthtoyou.org. That's truth number two, letter you.org. Joining me is the Director of Education and Counseling for Jews for Judaism in Canada. That's Jews for Judaism in Canada. The website is jewsforjudaism.ca. Jewsforjudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skoback. Shalom, Jano. And I, you're still with the rolling R. <laughs> Rabbi Michael Skobak. Love it. If you can do it, I reckon flaunt it. That's what I think. Now, we are, of course, continuing in our series, exploring the book of Psalms, chapter by chapter, asking questions like, who composed the psalm? What is it about? Uh, what was happening in the life of the author at the time of the composition? How does it apply to us today? Also, what would Christianity have us believe about each psalm and how does that deviate from the original intent we're going to be looking at some of those things and now this one again i think this chapter i don't know maybe you'll have something to add about this but christianity the new testament seems to leave this one alone for the most part we'll be touching on that in any case and uh, what i may do is read it through first this one straight off the bat again is a little bit different to the previous three that we have done michael this one begins i mean last a psalm, Psalm chapter 3, began telling us what it was about, it's a, that it was a psalm of David and that it was written, uh, it was about uh, when he fled from his son Absalom. This one is not about when and why, but rather it has a kind of an address and an introduction that begins by saying, to the chief musician with stringed instruments, is what I've got, a psalm of David. Hear me when I call, O God, my righteousness. You have relieved me of my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety Seems pretty straightforward, Michael. And, and I, I wonder, and uh, I'm sure maybe you have an opinion on this, I wonder if this is a continuation uh, in regard to his predicament regarding Absalom that we discussed last time. Perhaps this is uh, uh, an affirmation of, of the faithfulness of God in troubled times. How do you read it? Well, <clears throat> I, I found that there are at least three approaches that are taken by uh, classical Jewish commentaries to this psalm. One is, uh, as you just said, one sees it as a continuation, really, uh, of what we began in chapter 3. So, it's, it's 
taking off really on the whole incident where David is being pursued by his son Avshalom and by not just Avshalom, but there's a whole rebellion that rejects David and uh, Avshalom is advised to actually hunt David down and kill him. So this is seen by many commentaries as a continuation of, of that theme. And the only thing that switches really was that in Psalm 3, David is basically praying to God. The, the main uh, focus of Psalm 3 is David praying to God to save him. Mm-hmm. You know, here he's running for his life. And so, you know, he's frightened apparently. I mean, it's not clear if he's frightened. I mean, he's able to go to sleep. He's, but it, obviously, he must have on some level been concerned. And so, the, the, the focus is um, praying to God to save him. But in Psalm 4 here, David now is not really addressing God so much, but he's addressing uh, his adversaries. He's addressing, according to this uh, reading, this is really uh, coming mostly from Rabbi David Kimchi, the Radak, um, who says that David is addressing the supporters of Avshalom. And in this psalm, he really questions their motives for joining the rebellion, and he really turns to give them reproof. Um, so that becomes really for the Radak, the context of, of this Psalm, Psalm 4. But there's another very interesting approach, which is taken by the Malbim. And he uh, has us look at a chapter in the second book of Samuel, um, the 21st chapter. And the 21st chapter in Second Samuel begins uh, mysteriously. It says, in the, days, in the days of David, there was once a famine for three years. And year after year, David inquired of God. I guess he was trying to understand, you know, why are we going through this national calamity of this huge famine? Mm-hmm. So, according to the Malbim, what was happening is that as the nation was going through this calamity, there were uh, cynics who were suggesting that the cause of the calamity was due to David's sin, his sin with Bathsheba and sending her, his, her husband to mm-hmm. be killed. And uh, so, th- that's what's going on. Those are the people that David is addressing in this psalm. It's not the people who were trying to kill him and, uh, you know, expel him from the uh, being king. It's really the people who were questioning um, you know, why this famine was taking place, and they were suggesting it was due to David's fault. Mm-hmm. And the chapter there goes on to say that God came to David and said, no, it's not your fault. Um, he, God says it really is because of what King Saul did um, when he killed the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites, the Givonim, we saw back, I think, in the ninth chapter of Joshua, you know, they were terrified of the uh, people of Israel coming in and conquering the land of Canaan. Mm-hmm. And they were, I think, the Chivites. They were from the, from the uh, tribe of the, of the Chivites who really were on the chopping block. You know, they were going to be conquered. And uh, what they did was they disguised themselves as travelers from far away. And they end up making a peace treaty with Joshua. And mm-hmm. he ends up... Uh, employing them as uh, woodcutters and water Water drawers. So, what happens is, it's not clear when it says here in 2 Samuel 21 about Saul killing them, um, what it's really referring to. And so, uh, the the rabbinic sages have two possible uh, 
scenarios. One was that when Saul, Shaul, uh, killed the, the priests in the city of Nov, um, he killed some Givonim there as well. He killed some Gibeonites as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and another approach is that because Shaul felt that this entire people didn't have a right to live in the land because they really had tricked Joshua, it wasn't really a legitimate claim they had to be living there, so he apparently killed many and then expelled the rest. Um, so apparently what God is saying is that this famine is really um, a response to those, indis- the, the, those crimes that were committed by Shaul. And so what David does, a very tragic story, David goes to the Givonim and he says, look, what can we do to make up? And they have a very cruel request. Oh, they say, that's right. right? Yeah. You have to give us seven descendants of Shaul and we're going to hang them, mm. um, which they do. And then the, you know, the famine ends. Um, so, according to the Malbim, that's really the context here, that before it became clear that the famine was due to the, in the, the crimes of Shaul, people were blaming David for it. Mm. And so, those are the people that, are, uh, that David is addressing here in this chapter. And then the, the final approach that I saw, which I think is usually taken by more modern commentaries, is that this particular psalm was not really inspired by an event in David's life. And that it's really just a general reflection about being righteous and uh, trusting in God rather than being the kind of people that don't have trust in God and they end up, because of that, using unscrupulous ways to acquire wealth and uh, they end up actually criticizing people who they believe naively do put their trust in God. Um, And then, basically, David is encouraging such, uh, not those people, he doesn't really necessarily try to correct those people, it's not clear, but apparently, according to most of these interpretations, there are people who are sitting on the fence, meaning they're not the kind of people that are doing wickedness and, and cheating and, and, uh, and doing things that are unscrupulous in order to get ahead in life. Um, he's, he's really addressing in the psalm people who really do seek to be good but don't necessarily have a clear path. And so David encourages them um, that true good and true pleasure in life really can only be had in having a relationship with God and being connected to God. And it's much more of a real pleasure and real security than having material goods like corn and wine. So rather than being uh, a chapter that deals with an event in David's life, David is really speaking you know, about some general issue which affects human beings. Um, how are we going to live our lives? Um, so those are the three approaches that I've seen. What I probably would like to do um, a, because it's the approach that you suggested. B, because uh, it's usually considered to be the most standard Jewish approach, is to really see Psalm 4 as a continuation of Psalm 3. I think there are also textual clues as to the, the likelihood of linking these two chapters. There, there does uh, seem to be some parallels, and, uh, and, and it does make me wonder because – uh, with verse 2, I mean, how long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? And that is, I mean, very much specifically what, what happened. His kingship 
was overthrown, he had to leave barefoot, as it were, uh, get out of uh, Jerusalem quickly. Uh, his glory was very much turned to shame. And also, you know, um, you know, the commentaries point out that, you know, this was a campaign to discredit David, meaning that, you know, here he was a very popular king, mm. and now he's being run out of town on, a, you know, on a rail. Mm. And, you know, in order to do that, how were, you know, Avshalom and, and his advisors able to turn the entire nation against David? So, a large part of it was to discredit David, to attack his character, to, you know, seek scandals. It's almost like the American election going on now. Right. You know, that, that you have to really spend your time slamming your opponents. Mm. So, a lot of it, a lot of the, the, the trouble he had were all these attacks upon his character. You know, and therefore, since, you know, he was such an unscrupulous and evil person, you know, the argument was he doesn't belong on the throne. You know, we need new blood. We need, uh, you know, a change in the government. And so, apparently, the people or many people fell for these uh, attacks on his character. Um, If I could just go back for a moment, um, the the chapter begins with a very – uh, we'll see throughout the book of Psalms, it comes up 55 times um, that the, the psalm will begin with this word, Lam Natseach, um, which I think you had to, as a translation for the conductor. Yeah, I've got or, uh, to the chief musician with stringed instruments. So that's the word Binginot. Binginot would be stringed instruments, but the first word is Lam Natseach, um, which is usually translated as for the conductor, meaning that we know that these psalms were uh, played in the temple on instruments and they were sung by the Levites. So, th- this, not just this psalm, I mean, 55 psalms begin with this very same word. So, it's some kind of uh, indication that there are going to be instructions for the conductor and for the musical director, the director mm. and the singers. But what's interesting is the etymology of the word. Lamnat Seach uh, comes from the word Netzach, Netzach, which has two possible meanings. Netzach means eternity and eternal, mm-hmm. and it also means victory. And so, some of the commentaries point out that one possibility here is that through the, through the inspiration of this music, there's going to be an appeal to uh, ultimately um, be victorious mm-hmm. through uh, following the message of this psalm. You could that there'll be vic- victory to not just David, but to anyone who follows the message of this psalm. Or it's seen as a way of addressing the eternal one, meaning that the word Netzach means eternal. So Lam Natzach means really to the eternal one. And what does the eternal one do? That's the Almighty God. He can cause victory, and so. Really, it's this is almost not, not a double entendre, it's a triple entendre, that the same word that refers to the musical uh, conductor really also refers to the Almighty and to what the Almighty will bring about, which is a, a, a good resolution for whatever the psalm is dealing with, or a victory for David. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if we can go on to to the next verse, I don't know, in, the, in a Jewish Bible, uh, Verse 2 um, says, when I called out to you, God, mm. answer me, my righteousness. So, the, the language here is interesting. The, the word that is used for, uh, to relieve my uh, distress, 
So it's the word hirchavti or hirchavta, which means to widen. Literally, it mean, uh, it's from the word wide. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting that the word for distress here is batsar. Now, you, you'll hear in the word tsar, you know, you find it in the word mitzrayim. Um, mitzrayim, Egypt, uh, mm-hmm. it, you know, comes from this word tsar. And tsar literally means narrow or constricted. And so, um, you know, Mitzrayim is really a place where it, the Israelites were constricted. You know, it was, it was a place that was choking them and crushing mm. them. And so, in, in general, we speak about our difficulties as, you know, we're, being, we're in a very narrow place, a place of constriction, mm-hmm. a place where we're not free. And so, the resolution is through widening you know you're sort of loosening the grip mm. and you have more space and, and the freedom. commentaries point out that what one of the messages here is that david is saying um that not only did you relieve me of my distress that you relieved me of my difficulties but really it's through my difficulties you widened me meaning i was able to grow through these difficulties so even though I went through so many things that were difficult, David says, it's not only that he's saying here that God took off the pressure, but that God widened me. You know, I was able to become a bigger person. I think if I'm not mistaken, you know, remember there was a book years ago that was the most popular book in the Christian world. It was uh, The Prayer of Jabez, of Jabetz. Uh, rings a bell, yeah. Jabez, yeah. It was very, it's, a, it's I think five or six verses in the book of Chronicles. And uh, it was really actually a wonderful book where the author, I think his name was Wilkerson, um, just took the, the five or six words in this prayer of Yabetz and he expounded upon them. But I think one of the lines in that prayer was he's, he's seeking God to widen his territory, to make, uh, to expand his territory. And so what David is saying here is that in my prayers to you, God, you know, I was obviously praying when I was in difficult uh, straits and in, in crushing difficulties. Um, you relieved me, number one. But number two, which is really the more important thing, David is saying that I became a, a greater person, a bigger person. Uh, you know, they always say in a gym, if you want to grow your muscles, you have to overcome resistance. Mm-hmm. So, in life, when we overcome difficulties and we navigate these kind of problems, we grow through that. Um, and so, he goes on to, as you pointed out, after he has this encounter with God and he says that God answers his prayers and God did, um, God was gracious to me. Um, in the in the response to my prayers, David now has been strengthened by these prayers, and he now turns and he faces his adversaries, mm, and, he's, and he addresses them. Yeah, yeah, and so he, you're right. He doesn't go on and continue praying. He basically says, as a, a statement of fact here, he says, "Look, I prayed, and God answered me, and God helped me, and now I'm strengthened by that." So he now does something which is different than Psalm three. In Psalm three, he was praying for relief from these adversaries mm. and now he's actually turning towards them and he's criticizing them and uh, again according to the approach that we're taking that these are the supporters of of shalom and the rebellion so he he says to them you know how long are you going to put my honor to shame mm. 
Um, so, as we said, not only are they attacking him, but they're attacking his character in order mm. to turn people and, against and, him. And his position, specifically. Exactly. And he, he says, not only are you attacking my character, he says, he, he criticizes them by saying that you love vanity, that, that you're loving vanity, meaning he's saying to them, your entire enterprise is going to come to nothing. What are mm. you doing? You're supporting someone who God didn't choose. So, you, you're on this road that's going nowhere. So he's saying, number one, you know, you're, you're sort of reveling in this unfair treatment of me, and it's all for the service of some kind of a cause which is just uh, going to come to – it's a vain effort. Nothing is going to really come of this rebellion. And he says that in doing it, you seek deception and falsehood, meaning that you're looking not just to find dirt on me. You're looking – you're going to try to make up false reports mm. about me. Right, you're seeking to to come up with things that are just falsehood altogether. Um, it's interesting that some of the commentaries point out that he may be referring to, or maybe not referring to it, but maybe an example of this, uh, of being false and deceptive, was from First Samuel chapter twenty-three, when David is hiding out with the people of Zeph, the Zephim, and apparently they displayed some friendship to David. They took him in. But secretly behind his back, they betrayed him to Shaul. So he, he definitely was, was putting up with people throughout his entire life that were being deceptive in their dealings with him. So in verse 4, I shouldn't say verse 4, the next verse, because I'm not sure if everyone's so on the same page. Yeah, it's verse 3 in, in, uh, in the Christian translation, verse 4 in the Hebrew. It says, but know, and he's still, he's still addressing them, right? He says, but know that the Lord, now I've got, has set apart for himself him who is godly. I'd be interested to see what you've got there. That's more or less what it's saying. It's saying that, that um, you should, he says to the adversaries, to his adversaries, you should know that um, God has distinguished, really the word in Hebrew really means distinguished, um, his devoted one. And to himself, God has really you know, distinguished his devoted one to himself. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's referring to David. Um, you know, the Hebrew word here is chasid, a chassid, mm-hmm. uh, really a, a pious one, a devoted one. And if you go to Psalm 86, David there says, Shamra nafshi, he says, God, protect my soul, guard my soul. And David says, n- not really <laughs> modestly, he says, ki chassid ani, because I am a pious one. He, he refers to himself very directly as someone who is a chassid. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in, in this verse here, he says to his adversaries, you should know that God has distinguished, meaning that God has really separated out um, me, who is a pious one to himself, to God. And therefore, because of that, because I am pious, and by the way, the sentence there begins with the word to know, de'u, right? Throughout the Bible, the word da, to know, is always connected to the idea of connection, right? We say that Adam knew his wife, Eve. Mm-hmm. So, it's not just saying that I want you to know this as information. He's saying, pay careful attention to this idea. Mm-hmm. Think about it. That since God um, is close to those who are devoted to him, God is going to answer my prayers. He's saying to them, look, you know, I have someone big on my side here. Mm. <laughs> Realize that, um, you know, that, that as someone who is a, a chassid, by the way, a chassid um, 
is even higher than a tzaddik. Usually the word tzaddik is the more common word for a righteous person. Mm -hmm. Righteous person, why are they righteous? They're righteous because they are obedient to God. They Mm -hmm. obey God. They fulfill the commandments of God. And therefore, they will be called a righteous person. But a chassid, from the word chesed, chesed means loving kindness and giving. The chassid goes beyond the tzaddik. The, 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 The chassid... Is, is really doing more than is required, right? The, the tzaddik is fulfilling their obligations, fulfilling their duties and responsibilities. The chassid is the one that goes way beyond what's even expected or required out of their tremendous love for God. So he's saying that you have to realize, he says to them, who you're dealing with. You're dealing with someone who has a very tight relationship with God and therefore he's certainly going to answer my prayers. And what happens at this time Right now, after this verse, mm. you know, he's been basically rebuking them. He's been telling them that they're unfair, they're treating him unfairly, they're backing a, a ridiculous cause. You know, he's been really yelling at them and rebuking them. But now, at this point in the psalm, he again changes his tone. It's very interesting now. The, the tone changes, but is, the, is this uh, next verse still addressing... Uh, the sons of men that have turned his glory to shame. Is he still talking to them in this verse? It's very interesting. In in the translation I've got, be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Is he saying, hey, what I've just told you, think about it. You, you've, you're not going to win this war. Think about it. It's not going to go in your favor. Right. So what the tone now becomes, I think, from rebuke, really he's moving into counseling. He's really trying to help them. You know, it's sort of, it's a subtle change, you know, that there are people who, you know, out of their anger will rebuke people. You know, mm-hmm. he, he's, he was afraid of them in Psalm 3. He was terrified and he had to, you know, pray to be safe. And then in Psalm 4, he begins to now, you know, look at them and, and accuse them. He's accusing them of being, you know, immoral and, and, and wicked. But now he's really moving from rebuking them to trying to help them. And we're going to see as the psalm moves along, he's going to become more and more conciliatory and actually more loving towards them. So here in this verse, he says, look, you know, the, the, the Hebrew words here are, are pretty strong. Rigzu, the first word means to be agitated or to be trembling. You know, you, 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 he's saying that you really you should be trembling and don't sin. And he says that you should be saying to yourself or reflect to yourselves in your heart when you're sleeping. I mean, that's the time when a person could really think when they're going to sleep and, you know, there's nothing else to do. You're lying in bed with your own thoughts. And he's advising them to spend that time uh, when they're lying in bed to really think, to, to commune with yourself, to commune with your heart. Really, it's imru bil vavchem, to say to your hearts. Um, and he's asking them, he's pleading with them really to spend some time in self-reflection and he's encouraging them to use that time to really think clearly about their actions and about their motivations. Why are you doing what you're doing? And he says, he ends the sentence by saying, Vadomu, and you should be still. It's, it's usually translated as be silent. Um, but the, the word is more than, the, the word of silent in Hebrew is shtikali, shtok. Domu really, it's almost like there's a word for inanimate objects, domain. He's really encouraging to sort of basically cease and desist. 
you know, he's saying that if you really think about what you're doing, he's not saying you should be quiet. He's saying you should be just still. You should just stop what you're doing. Stop in your tracks. I wonder if he's also, I mean, do you think it'd be fair also to, to think that perhaps he's saying, it's okay, be angry. Okay, so you don't agree with me. You don't have to agree with me on, on everything, but don't sin by trying to overthrow me. You have to understand that God has put me in this position. You have to understand that God is on my side. By all means, it's up. if you want to disagree, if you're angry about something, fine, but don't sin. It, you know, and then he says, meditate within your heart, you know, as if to say, come on, be honest with yourself. Think about this and may common sense prevail. Is that, is that fair? Well, I think it's one way of looking at it. But, you know, it's interesting that what we're going to see in the coming verses is that David is going to question their motivations. Meaning that really, at the end of the day, why would they be angry at David? Um, you know, what do they have against him? Hmm. And what he's going to be exposing is that they were not even sincere in their uh, backing of Avshalom. It's not as if they had some political agenda. He's going to be really suggesting that, you know, the, the, especially the people at the top of the rebellion, they had their own personal agendas. They had their own personal uh, ambitions or their own personal greed. And they were just using this rebellion as a way of advancing their sure. own personal goals so it's not as if they had a legitimate issue with david you know they were basically jumping on this bandwagon uh because they see an opportunity exactly so you know there's nothing really to be angry with him about so he's he's pleading with them to really think about you know what are you doing why are you doing it you know it's ridiculous and as you said you know god chose me so if you're really opposing me you're opposing god and you know that's not going to end well so, mm. he, he asks them now, again, it's it really, I see the tone as pleading. He's saying you should be righteous, right? He off, you should offer up sacrifices of righteousness. You know, you don't have to even see it as necessarily literally talking about bringing animals to the temple. You know, in, in many ways, it's an expression where he's asking them to, you know, live righteously. And, you know, sometimes when you live righteously, you have to live sacrificially, meaning you have to sacrifice your own ambitions. You have to sacrifice, you know, your own fantasies. You have mm-hmm. to give up a lot of things. So you could read this literally as he's encouraging them. Yes, go to the temple and bring sacrifices. Um, but you could read this more, you know, allegorically that um, he's saying, you know, be righteous. And if you're going to be righteous, you're going to have to give up things. You're going to have to sacrifice things, which which are your own selfish and you know, materialistic ambitions. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, and he's, I think part of this is, again, the questioning of why they're really supporting Avshalom. It really is not for political reasons. Um, And again, he's saying that if you're going to bring sacrifices, realize that, you know, as the Bible says repeatedly, that the sacrifice by itself is not going to do anything, right? Don't think that you're going to be able to sort of just turn the tide here by bringing sacrifices he's saying is he's emphasizing they have to be sacrifices that are accompanied by um living righteously you have to really you have to you have to have a change of heart you have to become people that are now righteous and he goes further and he says you have to trust in god and the reason is because um if they're going to really repent they're going to have to really trust that god can really provide them with all their legitimate needs, meaning if they really had this fantasy and this illusion that they needed 
to you know back this revolt in order to get what they needed in life um you know that th- that was a feeling they had they fe- they felt that you know they're not going to get ahead unless they you know get on this bandwagon with this with this revolution mm. with this um uprising and he's saying that if you really trust in god you have to realize that god will provide you with what you need and so he's really saying that you know all of your jealousies you know the question will be we'll get to this in a minute you know what were they jealous of these people but whatever their jealousies were you know if a person has true faith in god the jealousies sort of melt away because um you know the jealous person is someone who doesn't really trust that god is looking out for their best interests mm. so he's encouraging them to really uh, you know, develop trust in God, and you know they'll he'll, they'll find that all these concerns they had that were moving them to live unrighteously and really in an evil way uh, will melt. Verse uh, seven in the Hebrew: There are many who say, and, and the tone changes again here. There are many who say, "Who will show us any good?" Why is that question there, Michael? What is what is it saying? I found this to be a hard verse, actually, yeah. um, because it, it's not really clear. And, you know, this is a rule when you're studying the scriptures to always be attentive to who is speaking. And so, the beginning of the verse is clearly, right, the, the people, let's say, that David has been addressing all along in this psalm. And really, what David is trying to expose here is um, – you know, what their concern was. So, they were, uh, their concern was, you know, who's going to show us good? Mm. How are we, that's what they were always, you know, how are we going to get things in life that we want? Um, So, that was their driving concern. It was sort of like, you you can call it selfish, but it was a self-centered concern about how they're going to advance in life, how they're going to make it in life, how they're going to have the good life. So, that's what they were driven by, you know, how are they going to have the good? And, um, you know, the Radak, you know, he reads this in the most, uh, you know, insidious way. He reads this as an expression of the followers of Ashalom who are saying, you know, what, what, is, what is going to be good for us is if we can finally kill David. You know, and then if that happens, all our aspirations will be fulfilled. Mm. You know, that is the most sort of, I guess, a a horrible way of reading this phrase. Um, Rashi has, I think, a slightly different approach, which I I personally uh, find more compelling here. Rashi tries to really penetrate why were these people jumping on the bandwagon of Avshalom in the first place? So Rashi says that what was going on was that the the people were just. they were unhappy with their lot in life. They really didn't see themselves as successful as they could be. And what prompted that, Rashi suggests, is that they were jealous of the material success of the Gentile nations that were surrounding them. So, he says that, you know, they, they were, they were, no one was, was dying. They weren't starving. They weren't, you know, they were living, but they were not living the good life. And they were looking around and seeing nations around them, they felt had a higher standard of living and they, you know, were more prosperous and they were, you know, they had a, you know, better economy or whatever they had. The, the, the people were just unhappy and they were jealous of the material 
success of the non-Jewish nations that surrounded them. So that's how Rashi explains this, you know, the, the, the seeking, the, 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 what they were seeking, that these masses of people was who's going to show us the good, meaning where, how are we going to really ac- accomplish and, and uh, succeed in getting what's good in life? Hmm. But what happens now, according to these explanations, and it gets a little bit difficult, you would think that the same people are still speaking in the second half of the verse, but the commentary suggests that no, the first half of the verse are the adversaries of David speaking, but then what happens is um, David now responds to them, and David is basically saying, look, if you're seeking what's good in life, he says, let the light of your faith shine. Mm meaning let uh, the presence of God shine upon you, um, that's the good life. Meaning that if you really want to have what's good, experience the spiritual bliss uh, of being in the presence of God. And if you have that, you're not going to be pining for all these material pleasures. Um, so it, it certainly seems that way because there is no break in the text and uh, therefore it, it would be fair to understand that this is a reply to the question. And I notice if I take away the words that are in italics, the words that uh, aren't actually in the text, it says, many who say, who will show us good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. That's the reply. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season of their grain and wine increased. Right. That's the next verse. Mm. Right. So this verse, just just to back up for a moment, the, the language here is interesting. Um, the Hebrew word here is nisa alenu. To, to literally, nase, the word nase in Hebrew doesn't just mean miracle, it means a banner. And it's really, literally what it's saying is lift up as a banner upon us the light of your face, God. Um, meaning lift up upon us the light of your countenance like a banner. And so what David is really saying here to them is you should raise up a new standard, raise up a, a, a new standard for your lives, right? You were really living a life which was directed towards, you know, success being defined materially. And so David says here, you know, that really what you need to do is to have another outlook on life, to raise up a new standard. That's this word nisa, mm-hmm. to lift up. And he's saying that what will lift you up ultimately is understanding that the the greater pleasures in life are really spiritual pleasures. And in the next verse, in the Hebrew verse 8, he he says to them, look, he says, that's what happened to me. (laughs) David is sort of now showing that, you know, I'm an example, he says to them, of this reality that because I have this kind of a relationship with God, right, God has made my heart happy, um, right, that God has put joy into my heart, even more than having all these, uh, you know, the grain and the wine and abundance, mm-hmm. that, that's nothing. And it's interesting that David is speaking to them, right, as, you know, they're aware of the fact that David has been living a miserable life on a material, well, not miserable, but David has had tremendous difficulties, meaning that they know that David was pursued by his father-in-law, Shaul, and they know the kind of difficulties that David's going through now with this 
total rebellion against him. He's been forced to flee for his life. You know, his own son is rebelling against him. They know what's going on. And who would imagine that he has peace of, peace of mind? Mm. Who would imagine that he can be joyous? Who can imagine that he can be happy? But David is saying, look, guys, I'm a person that's at peace, and I have joy in my heart. And so, you know, what I'm sharing with you is not just pie in the sky. I'm a living example of someone whose life has been transformed so that even though I'm in great danger a lot and I, I have people have turned against me and, you know, maybe the average person would jump off a building if they had to face what I'm facing. David says, no, I have peace and I have joy in my heart and it's much, much greater than you know, the kind of things that most people pursue, which is the material success that, you know, mm. that they really strive for. And one of the things the commentaries point out here is that David is sort of alluding to the idea that um, he gets, this is another take on this verse, that what David is saying is that I have great joy in my heart, even when, especially when they uh, the non-Jewish nations, right, have tremendous riches. Meaning, mm. what David is saying here is that the success of the nations fills my heart with joy. David is saying, I, I, I don't get jealous of them. He says to the his his the people he's speaking to, I'm not jealous of them. He says, I'm thrilled when I see these people with material success because David is saying that if 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 those people who anger God are being blessed then obviously those people who love God and live according to his will will all the more so be blessed. Meaning, he's saying to these people, look, you're going to have uh, you know, everything. You're going to have a relationship with God which will ultimately lead to the fulfillment of all your desires because here you see even these pagan nations that don't worship God and they worship idols, they have material success. So you have to trust that you know, if you turn to God and you give your lives to him, you'll also be blessed. God is not going to diminish you by turn, if you turn to him. Mm. Um, it's, I, I like the way in, uh, in verse 9 uh, in his closing that he says, listen, not only will I lie down in peace, but I'll also sleep. You know, I, I, I'm okay with where I'm at. And uh, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I'd like to just go back to a couple of things, though, if I may, because as, as you say, I mean, I'm just reconsidering verse 7 as you speak, and you, you mentioned that it's a difficult one to… Uh, Parse, yeah. Yeah, and the, just the use of the word us in both of those lines now in my mind connects them. Uh, many who say, who will show us good, Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. Uh, so, is it possible that the, uh, if you like, the quotation marks go around uh, who will show us any good and then end uh, with uh, lift your countenance upon us? Is that what they say? Is, is it possible that that whole… You mean the, adver the adversaries well, are speaking it, Well, the this is the other thing, though. It may not… Perhaps it's not even the uh, adversaries. Perhaps because he's been addressing the adversaries and he's, he's put them in their place, and now conversely he's saying, you know, there are many… There are many who say, who will show us good? And, and perhaps they are uh, those who are wanting David back. Who will show us good? When will the day return when David comes back in his rightful position? Perhaps 
because of the, the use of the word us, who will show us good, Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. I don't know. It's just, it is interesting. There's a number of ways that you can take verse 7. Your, your suggestion is very interesting. I had not thought of that, that this is really a, a, a third group, really, that's entering into the conversation here, right? It's, it's not David speaking. It's not the adversaries, but it's, it's maybe a group or people that are hoping David will return. Mm. I hadn't thought of that. But, you know, even, I mean, the, the thing that mitigates against or the way I was trying to read it is, as you said, the word us, because why would David you know, be using that kind of expression. Yeah. But it's possible that what David is doing, if, if David is speaking here, is David is including him with the adversaries, meaning that David is speaking, uh, really, he's including the, the adversaries in the, the, who's speaking in the first clause. And David is really saying, not just that God should reveal his face and his countenance to me, David is saying to the people he's addressing, right, let God uh, reveal and lift up his countenance mm. to us, to all of us. Mm. So, I, I agree with you, though, that this verse is so, uh, you know, flexible in the way that it can be parsed and read. Mm. I think there are, there's room for lots of different interpretations. So, just a few things. First of all, the last verse, it's so interesting that, you know, as you read this chapter – as we've been reading it, you know, David, really, he develops here from, you know, sort of being angry with them and rebuking them to, you know, sort of in support and helping them with guiding them. And then he really ultimately, in this last verse, really going even further, he's saying that I really don't have any ill will for you and I really seek your welfare. And, um, I seek the best for you, and I would love to be able to, you know, to, to, to be at peace with everyone. I mean, it's an amazing concluding sentence where um, he says, according to one translation here, in peaceful unity, I could lie down and sleep. Mm-hmm. Meaning that what he's saying is, according to Rashi, that I could very easily lie down and sleep if what? If we were all united together in peace. Um, that's the, the word here that's tricky in this verse is the word um, yachdav, meaning that the, the, the Hebrew says b'shalom in peace, yachdav, uh, together, right? Mm-hmm. I could lie down and sleep. So the way Rashi takes that word of together is that, you know, that, that um, I, could, I could lie down and sleep if what? If we were all together and united in peace. Um, so you see that uh, that statement is conditional. It's 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 not a, a statement of saying, you know, don't worry about me. I'm all right. I know where I stand with God. I will both lie down and sleep. But well, Rashi is saying more. Rashi is saying that, that that David here is really expressing his hope that you know everyone be able to you know make up and live together, live together in peace. Mm-hmm. That's the first two words according to Rashi: "B'shalom yachdav" in peace together. And if we, were, if we had that peace together, if we were able to achieve that kind of unity again, I could lie down and sleep. Um, and he goes on to say, Hashem levadad, um, For you, God, according to Rashi, um, the, the word levadad lavetach, it really is describing for him the ideal state of the Jewish people, that we will dwell 
apart and secure because we are all together. And uh, other commentaries say no, that the apart here is, um, is David saying that it's only you, God alone, that can bring security to my dwelling. So there are two ways of looking at this phrase, that um, either it's a description of the ideal state of the Jewish people, that we will be dwelling apart from everyone else and alone as a separate nation, um, we will, you know, that that's a phrase that comes up many times in the Bible. Mm-hmm. That we're, we're a nation that dwells apart. Um, but according to the Radak, the, the the word "apart" here and alone is really saying that it's only God that can bring this kind of security to us as a people. Um, but really, the, the the I think the emotion here and the sort of the the emotional. Uh, valence of this verse is really sort of stepping up what's been happening in the psalm, that it goes from, you know, uh, angry rebuke to counseling to helping people, you know, move along the path of rehabilitation Mm -hmm. to really at the end, you know, a prayer for, um, you know, unity and that we should be together. Because a lot of people, look, in David's position, he could have been willing to rebuke people and even help them repent, but he could have had ill feelings toward them and say, look, I, I wish you guys well, but I don't want much to do with you. Mm. Um, he's going further. He's saying, not only did I want you to repent and for you to restore your relationships with God and live a good life and have a nice life goodbye, you know, he's saying, but I want to be with you. I want to be together with you in peace. So, it really is quite amazing how David, uh, you know, progresses from Psalm 3 where he's fearful of these people. He has to pray for God to help him and to save him. Where in chapter 4, David is confronting them and he's uh, counseling them and he's helping them and he ultimately uh, ends by saying, I really desire nothing more than to live together with you. Um, You know, what the commentaries point out, and I think this is really worth mentioning, um, is that, you know, I mentioned before that Rashi was suggesting that would led to the people joining this rebellion was their um, envy of the riches of the non-Jewish nations. And the commentaries point out that what David is really appealing to is for them to give up their concept of monarchy, which is not appropriate. Meaning that if we go back to the original demands the Jewish people had for a king, this is in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when they were, they were clamoring for a king, mm. what did they say? They said, we want to be like all the other nations. Mm. That they said they, they wanted a king because they wanted to be like all the other nations. And that was not acceptable well, even, to Even God. more than that, give us a king like the other nations. Exactly. Mm. Right? That, 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 that was their motivation for having a king. All the other nations have a king. We want a king like the other, other nations have a king. And, you know… Basically, what Samuel says and what God basically says is that, no, that's not the purpose of a king. Um, you know, that what David is really saying is that that concept of the kingship didn't work. We saw that, that Shaul, his reign didn't last. He wasn't able to really uh, have a secure kingdom. You know, God didn't approve of it. And what David's monarchy was able to emphasize, this was the, the really the, 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 the main contribution of David, was that the king, in a, in a Jewish biblical uh, construct or model, a king is mainly a representative of God. 
the king is not supposed to be, you know, the uh, you know the the one that's going to somehow bring honor and glory to the to the people. Mm. You know, it's interesting that the followers of Avshalom were really reverting to this prior concept of a non-Jewish right, right. view of well, monarchy. Because what did it say about Avshalom? He had beautiful looks, and he had 50 runners that were going with his mm. chariots, meaning they he saw power. He had incredible hair. Yes. He was, <laughs> but, but the thing is, he, was, he radiated strength and power, and they saw you know, glory. They saw meaning mm. that it was honor. It was, it was that. But this, this is a king like the nations. In, in those days, a king of the nations were ascribed a, a, a sense of deity, and when God appointed Saul, God specifically referred to Saul as a commander. But he said to, to Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me from being king over them because they want a king like the nations, someone who's going to be almost divine to them or, or ascribe some form of, of, of deity within a, within a man. That's what they're, uh, what they're looking towards. And what I'm telling you is that, yeah, okay, tell them they can have it, but I'm, I'm giving them Saul and he's a commander over the people. Yeah, and when you say that by asking for that kind of a king, they're rejecting me, God, mm. what they're really saying is that your interest is in not in serving me. You want to serve yourselves. You're looking for your own agenda. You're looking for your own – you think that, that somehow – Having this kind of a powerful king is going to lead you to it being a powerful country, a powerful nation. We'll be able to lord yourselves over other people. Mm. You'll be able to, you know, have more power and more glory and more riches and more honor and more wealth. Mm. And so, if that's what's important to you, obviously, you know, serving God is not that important to you. So, what David is really pleading for here is that um, they go back to understanding that the whole purpose of the kingship is to help people um, you know the king is really a representative of God that's trying to lead the people to having mm. a relationship with God where that's the most important thing so really what he's saying to them is that you know their security ultimately is only going to be um, in God not in the majesty of kings not in some good-looking young hunk you know with long hair <laughs> And, you know, good looks and, you know, he's got a you know, fancy, you know, uh, motorcade that's following around. That's, you're going for the glitz and you're mm. going for the bling. And what David is saying is, no, we have to dwell apart as a nation that's apart mm. from these foreign influences. Mm. We don't want to necessarily lead our country like everyone else in the world where those are the most important things. Um, Really, God is the most important thing for us, and having a relationship with God, and that will only that will bring true uh, security and true joy in life. And so, you know, to me, the beautiful thing about these two Psalms, chapters three and four, is that you see David himself is going through this progression um, where he meets, um, you know, people that are trying to really betray him and uh, threaten him in the third psalm um, to really him empathizing with them. Mm. Uh, 
you know, you know, feeling for them and really trying to help them and ultimately forgiving them and, you know, hoping that one day they'll be able to restore their relationship. Um, now, when I thought about this psalm and how it interfaces with Christian thinking and Christian theology, mm-hmm. um, I thought of two things. But the truth is that these two issues will come up in almost all the psalms, but I'll point them out here. Um, one is this. It's very clear here that David has a relationship with God, that David speaks here about him calling out to God and God answering him and him feeling uh, at peace and feeling joy because of his closeness with God. Mm. Now, the message of the Gospels is no one comes to the Father except Except through Jesus. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Right? So, how is it possible that David was able to have this kind of an intimate relationship with God without going through Jesus. David was able to go directly to the Father, that he didn't need a Jesus in order to have this closeness and this intimacy with God. Mm. So, the, the, the claim of the Gospels is really, I believe, most strongly disproved by the Tanakh itself. And the, the greatest proof, really, is in the book of Psalms, where David is expressing, you know, in very beautiful language, these songs that really express his incredibly deep and profound uh, and intimate relationship with God. Um, You don't get the sense in any of the Psalms that there was something missing, Mm. that David somehow was missing the key to be able to connect with God. So I think that's really not just here in Psalm 4. We're going to see that this comes up in almost all the Psalms, Mm -hmm. that I believe that these Psalms challenge uh, you know, that claim in the Gospel of John, which says that, no, you cannot come to God except through um, God's Son. Um, and the second thing, which I think is in this psalm and also comes up in other psalms, is that David refers to himself as a as a Hasid, as someone who's pious, right? That goes beyond being righteous. Mm. Now, in Romans chapter 3, Paul says, there's not anyone who's righteous, no, not one. So, how is it possible for Paul to insist that, right, as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, um, Satan has become the god of this world, and Satan really controls every person. Satan literally prevents people from being good. Um, As it says in the Protestant theologians, that they have their tulip, the T stands for total depravity. Right, that's right. right. if people are totally depraved, and as Paul claims, it's there's no one that's good. Everyone is a miserable sinner and alienated from God, and that they literally there's no way that mm. they can bridge the gap to God. They cannot be good. You know, you don't only see here in Psalm four that David. I mean, it, it's a little bit again. Usually, the pious person is not tooting his own horn and <laughs> calling himself <laughs> pious, but um, you know that that's what. David is saying about himself. If, if there is none who are righteous, according to Paul in Romans chapter 3, then uh, then how does he explain uh, David as a Hasid and not just a Zadig? So you're, you're quite right. And we're going to get into that even in more detail when we get to Psalm 14. Yes, exactly. Mm, grand. Thank you, my friend. It's wonderful to have you back on the program. Psalm chapter 4, of course, we'll be getting into Psalm chapter 5 next time. It's a little bit longer. So, dear listeners, until then, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Mm-hmm.